everyone. So we are going to get started on the, the final lap of today's conference. So thank you all for making it uh, this far. Uh, for those who are coming to this session, my name is Matthew Feeney, a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. And in about 15 minutes, we're going to have the last panel titled The Drug War and the Opioid Crisis, Approaches and Remedies. But first, we're going to have comments from Professor William Kelly about his latest book, From Retribution to Public Safety, Disruptive Innovation of American Criminal Justice. Professor Kelly uh, teaches and researches sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He has taught and conducted research in criminology and criminal justice for over 25 years and has published extensively on a variety of justice matters. Kelly's consulting work spans local, state, and federal governments and has given him the opportunity to collaborate with a large number of justice agencies. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Kelly. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Clark, and the Cato Foundation for inviting me here today. Um, I feel a lot of pressure to do a really good job today um, because when I added up what it cost to fly here, what Cato had to play, pay to get me here and to stay in my hotel and the other fees, it works out to about $80 a minute. Um, so I have a short talk, so I'll try and get to the point here. Uh, what I want to talk about is the latest book that I've written on criminal justice uh, reform and criminal justice policy. I've published three in three years. The most recent one, From Retribution to Public Safety, the subtitle is Dis Disruptive Innovation of American Criminal Justice. The title implies moving from anger-based decision-making to being effective, and the subtitle talks about let's get serious about it. Uh, when I talk about criminal justice reform, I hesitate with things like piecemeal reform. My goal is to make uh, substantial, meaningful criminal justice change. I wrote this book myself in collaboration with uh, Robert Pittman, who is a United States District Court judge in the Western District of Texas. He also served as United States Attorney in the Western District of Texas, as well as an assistant U AUSA. So he has a lot of prosecution background, as well as bench background. I also wrote it with William Strusand, who is a, a psychiatrist, who is a psychiatrist who practices in Austin, has developed a lot of policy and programming in the area of behavioral health. I want to talk about quickly where we have been in terms of criminal justice policy, what we have accomplished, whether or not we think that's an acceptable report card, and then importantly, where the hell do we go from here? And the where the hell do we go from here? Um, I think the value add is the fact that we have decades of research now that tell us what are effective ways to change behavior. We've known this for a good bit of time, what we haven't done as a country and what the 3,200 criminal justice systems in the country haven't done collectively is to reinvent criminal justice and how we go about the business of reducing crime and recidivism. For the past 50 years, we have prosecuted an all-out war on crime and drugs. With exceptions, the primary focus of that has been on punishment, that is trying to punish bad behavior out of people. It is, again, often anger-based decision-making. We put people in prison because they make us mad, not necessarily because we think that is um, uh, not that we actually should fear them legitimately. It is based upon retribution, an eye for an eye, which I certainly appreciate and understand as a, a logic or a rationale for punishing somebody, but we need to appreciate there is really no utility beyond some emotional 
relief or satisfaction. It's also based on the idea of deterrence. Judge Alm told us this morning about swift and certain, the Hope Court. That is a version of deterrence, but it is not the version we've been using collectively in, in criminal justice policy. We have focused upon severity rather than swiftness and certainty. So we put all of our eggs really, it's a bit of a stretch, but most of our eggs in the punishment basket. And in that basket, we have focused on trying to enhance punishment. What have we accomplished? First of all, the largest prison system in the country, the highest incarceration rate, the largest correctional control population, jail, prison, probation, and parole, and the highest correctional control rate of anybody in the country. We have spent a couple ways of looking at it. We've spent a trillion dollars over the past 50 years on tough on crime, another trillion dollars on the war on drugs, or you can look at it more broadly and say, and this is something that came out just recently from Washington University in St. Louis, they estimate that we spend about a trillion dollars a year combined criminal justice costs, drug war costs, and all the other social and economic costs of crime. It's sort of a bigger picture, obviously a little bit more slippage in the numbers there, but a bigger picture uh, version of what, of what the, the cost and impact, financial impact of crime really looks like. Big investment, has it been worth it? Recidivism rate in general of about 65%, often well north of that. Recidivism is a measure of, of reoffending or reconviction or reincarceration. We have a variety of ways of looking at it. The point is it's an official statistic. So in reality, the real recidivism rate is a good bit higher than the 65% that we report because half of crime is never even reported to the police and of those crimes that are reported, uh, uh, the, the arrest rates or clearance rates are highly variable. Some would argue that our efforts of being tough on crime have accomplished what, uh, what is often called the great crime decline of the 1990s, the fact that crime in this country took a precipitous dip and has remained at historically low or nearly historically low rates since then. The problem is crime rates did the same thing in almost every other Western country. Just look at Canada, our nearest neighbor, you would see precisely the same patterns. I don't think they've engaged in the same type of uh, initiatives in terms of being tough on crime. Finland, Norway, Germany, everyone else in the Western Hemisphere has experienced similar declines without the output and effort of being tough on crime. How did we get it so wrong? Why is all of this focus on punishment, whether it's police on the street, tough on crime prosecutors, tough on crime judges, tough on crime, crime legislators who have written all the mandatory sentences that have kept people in prison for longer and longer periods of time. How did we get it so wrong? In part because we simplified what crime is about. We basically said crime is about making bad decisions. And in one sense, that's correct. But what we know today from psychiatric research, from neuroscientific research, from addiction research, and a variety of other inputs from the medical community and behavioral health is that there are reasons that make people make bad decisions. We all understand punishment. That's why it was an easy sell. Let's get tough on crime. I mean, when Richard Nixon declared war on crime back in 1968, a little irony there with Richard Nixon declaring war on crime, um, but it made sense to us. We all experience punishment. We experience the threat of punishment. It's how we become civil social beings. The problem is, where we got it wrong, is many criminal offenders aren't like us. They differ in fundamental ways. 
Over 50% of everybody in the American criminal justice system has a diagnosable mental illness. In many jails today in this country, 20% of those individuals have what is called a serious mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or major depression. 80% of people in the criminal justice system have a substance use disorder. 60% of all people in prison and jail today have had at least one traumatic brain injury. What is the relevance of that? It often leads to neurocognitive impairment. Executive dysfunction. Executive functioning is the activity of the frontal lobe of the brain that involves things like decision-making, planning, impulse control, uh, complex cognition, a variety of things that impact one's ability to make good decisions. 15% have, have uh, uh, intellectual deficits or disabilities. It gets worse when we consider comorbidity, that is, co-occurring disorders. The vast majority of people with a mental illness in the criminal justice system have more than one diagnosis, and that is often accompanied by a substance use disorder. We tend to think that mental illness and violence go together. That's because when we hear about a horrible shooting, uh, we, we tend to think of the individual who engaged in that as being, as being mentally ill. What, what, the, what the actual research shows is that violence is not just a product of mental illness, it's a product of the comorbidity of mental illness in a substance use disorder. We may not like to think that, but that's what the, what the science shows. So we hear things like, you know, it's just a matter of somebody, the wrong people having, having, having weapons. That oversimplifies the problem as well. Why is it? that the likelihood of engaging in crime is so fundamentally related to age, that is, individuals 15 to 24 years old. Who can help us understand that? It's called the age-crime curve. The likelihood of engaging in crime is much higher when someone is between the ages of 15 and 24. Why? It's not a rhetorical question. You have to work here, okay? Brain development. What about brain development? It's the frontal lobe of the brain. It's not fully developed until someone's in their 20s. Yeah, Johnny made a bad decision when he committed the crime. Guess what? Johnny does not have adequate control over his decision-making faculty. Yet, for many decades now, we have tried to punish that behavior out of Johnny. Growing up in the environment of poverty, neuroscience research shows us that it can easily lead to a 20% reduction in the development of the frontal lobe of the brain, once again implicating uh, executive functioning. Other trauma and environmental toxins uh, have impacts that go way beyond just disadvantage and, and can easily impact one's mental and cognitive health. Here's the bottom line. Punishment does nothing to change those things we've just talked about. What is it about being in prison that might uh, it, that might correct someone's bipolar disorder. What is it about locking up an 18-year-old that's going to make them make better decisions when they don't have the capacity to do that? Again, it's a very commonsensical concept. We're applying it to the wrong people, at least many of the wrong people. The recidivism rate for mentally ill individuals is over 80%. That is a pretty obvious clue to perhaps a particular segment of the offender population for which we're doing nothing productive. And in fact, the research indicates that not only is incarceration 
not only does it not reduce recidivism, it actually increases it. And it makes it much worse for that very large segment of the offender population that we're talking about here, individuals who have a variety of psychiatric, psychological, neurodevelopmental problems. Where do we go from here? Well, in the three minutes and 49 seconds I have left, I think, which is, is this right, Matthew? I think there's a, like a decimal point missing or something. It can't possibly be that short. One of the biggest problems that, that I see in the American criminal justice system is something that was spoken about this morning, and that is plea negotiation. That is the fast track to punishment. That's because prosecutors, bless their hearts, are lawyers, and they understand one thing, and that is the law, and that is the processing of individuals. Unfortunately, prosecutors have all of the decision-making power. Judges, as we heard this morning from, from Judge um, Rakoff and others, the judges don't have much involvement in this process at all. Public defenders, lawyers, prosecutors, lawyers are the key decision-makers that determine what happens to somebody once they come in the front door of the justice system. And how we measure prosecutorial success typically is a conviction. So we have individuals making decisions about what to do with individuals where they have one, really largely one option, and that one option is punishment. How do we change that? Well, what we recommend in the book is to develop independent panels of experts, clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, clinical social workers. Independent is a key word. They need to be able to, as, some, as soon as somebody comes into the justice system, to begin the process of with unknown expertise in the current criminal justice system to begin screening and assessing individuals to determine who needs to be sorted into what category. We need to, we need to, to allow the key decision makers to make better decisions. We're conducting research right now on a book that I'm working on now on plea negotiation, and we're talking to prosecutors and public defenders, and they're all going, with a few exceptions. We're talking to dozens and dozens of these folks I need all the information I can get. That would be terrific. The, the naysayers are the ones that say we don't really have the capacity for that. We don't have the resources to divert people to treatment. But what we need to be able to do is be in a position to make informed decisions about what is best on a case-by-case -case basis, not categories, not sex offenders as a whole, not violent offenders as a whole, but individuals. Look at them and their circumstances. These are not excuses for criminal offending. I'm not, I'm not standing up here feeling sorry for someone who has a mental health problem and en engages in crime and gets involved in the criminal justice system. What I'm saying is we need to get smarter about how we deal with them. If I have a bipolar disorder, I enter the criminal justice system, odds are I'm coming back. And what happens when I come back? Every time I come back, what starts happening again? The cash register rings. We're throwing good money after bad. We may think we take the problem off the street for a night or two, or perhaps a year or two, but that problem will come back. It makes absolutely no sense. Morally, ethically, from a public safety perspective, from a recidivism perspective, and certainly from a financial perspective, to keep, watch my language here, throwing money away, increasing the risk that every one of us will become the victim of a crime? Why, why is that acceptable? Why do we tolerate such a dysfunctional criminal justice system? Why, why is it all right for individuals to recidivate and there's no accountability? My last point in the 13 seconds I have left, 
No one in the criminal justice system is in charge of recidivism reduction. And that's one of the major problems. Who are you going to call when somebody reoffends? Who are you going to point fingers at? The answer is nobody. It's time for the criminal justice system to be accountable. I'm 11 seconds over. Okay. All right. What do we do now? Do I leave?